Hey, hey, welcome to the WERT podcast. This is your host, Mark Washbourne, CEO of ReadyTech. And today you're gonna to hear a discussion on digital learning and specifically when that learning is provided with the right content at the right time and in flow and how that will support the future of work. So my guest today is an innovative thought leader in the edtech space, and that is Dan Fish from GoOne. After early years working in charities and NFPs, where Dan grew a passion for social justice, Dan has spent the last 10 plus years working for innovative and fast-growing technology businesses related to education and careers. Dan has held leadership positions at Australian success story Seek, and now he heads up strategy at GoOne, an exciting startup building a learning marketplace with a global footprint. So, Dan Fish, firstly, thanks for coming on. How are you, my man? I am well, thank you, given the circumstances. Pleasure to be here. Well, the circumstances are, I guess we're, we probably feel like we're right in the middle of, of COVID-19, but maybe we're just at the start, right? That's pretty scary. So, uh, I feel compelled to ask you, have have been managing the last couple of weeks? Yeah, I've, I'm sort of being half glass full and ever the optimist. It's um, I'm still positive. I think... Uh, I was listening to a chat called Michael Osterholm talk uh, on a podcast a few weeks ago, and uh, I feel like that was quite useful uh, managing expectations. And I think to your point, um, I think we're probably at the beginning of this for now. Um, so, yeah, I think getting aware, feeling comfortable with where the situation is as much as possible is been helpful. Um, been a bit, bit of transition with having all the family at home working together, uh, but I'm sure that's not unique. But yeah coping pretty well at the moment. I'm sure your team already spend their lives on Zoom meetings, right? Correct. Yes. And I'm sure Zoom are doing a tidy sum at the moment. I think they're doing okay, but obviously absolutely horrific time with Mm. to see people losing their jobs and and businesses closing. Mm. And, uh, but I think in, in some ways we're, we're probably also seeing some trends that were already in place, certainly accelerating. Mm. So we might talk a little bit about that today. That sounds good. Yeah. Well, I'd love to start with you. If you could start by telling us the story of your uh, your career journey to here? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, it sort of revolves around education. Um, started off, like most, at school. Um, lucky to finish that. Uh, didn't go on to further education. Started working straight away and uh, a couple of jobs here and there, but ended up settling down in advertising back in London in sort of mid-late 90s, which was um, an interesting period to be involved. Uh, sort of saw that as university of life. Very lucky to work with some smart people on some amazing global brands. But it wasn't quite the the dream maker that I had envisaged for myself. So I think a few years into that, I, I went back to, to school, to night school, no online learning then, uh, at Clapham Community College to study counselling. So I think it was that period where I realised actually there's something more socially driven that appeals to me mm-hmm. um, that I wanted to explore. And it was sort of that experience itself that took me out of advertising and, and moved me into the social impact space. And I spent... Um, sort of the next four years working for Save the Children in child welfare, which was probably the key aha sort of light bulb moment for me uh, and where the seed was really sown around education. Um, I was very privileged to work with some amazing people and get access to some really incredible data and and case studies. And um, I was really interested in the data at that point. And it wasn't difficult to look at that and track back um, across all these societal issues, whether it was poverty, disease, hunger, access to water any of this type of stuff and you can literally track the data back and see that in these societies and these peoples a lack of education was the dominant driver so it started to help bring context to the importance of education Um, for me I then moved to Australia and spent a couple of years at a fantastic not-for-profit called Bernardo's Uh, and then like some had a kid myself which changes changes your world slightly so ended up going back to the corporate sector and um, work for Seek, the the job board uh, career business, and thought, yeah, 12, 24 months, I'll be there. Great organization, but can't wait to get back to the not-for-profit space. And actually, nine years later, we're still there. And I think, you know, there's a number of reasons for that. Um, Great culture, great people. But um, it was really interesting for me to be able to work with an organization for profit that actually still had quite an interesting purpose. Um, And the purpose really there being career outcomes helping people find jobs but importantly for me given the education slant they're also doing a lot around education and Paul and Andrew were quite smart in this respect in that they were really focused on career and um, career life cycles but that doesn't mean anything without learning sort of 
folded in. So um, I ended up spending uh, a number of years there in numerous roles. And um, yeah, then really the only reason I left Seek was to go and work for my current employer, which is which is Go One. So it's where we are today. Now, I certainly can see how that sort of patchwork yeah. career has sort of informed a life into education. Mm. And uh, what was it specifically you saw at Seek? That was nine years. You mm. know, the, uh, it's quite a privileged view, I suppose, of mm. this connection uh, and uh, between supply and demand in the economy as well as uh, the need for skills yeah look I think there's there's some foundational things that that, that I took away from seek um, both personally and professionally I think professionally helped sort of reinforce my or position already around the importance of culture and people mm-hmm. um, I was very lucky to sort of have a fantastic experience of that with a lot of organizations also namely save the children I think as I touched on already um, the purpose piece, to working for a for-profit was was really important and, and helped to lay some some key foundations. Um, but I think the big thing, as I, I touched on a moment ago, was this connection between career and learning. I think um, really you can't have one without the other. And the seat business itself was was sort of split into a couple of different areas, mainly sort of around the employment, seek employment, and seek learning business. And I was really interested in how. Um, you know, we talk a lot, um, talked a lot at Seek about sort of the career life cycle, that gradle to grave piece, and how Seek and Paul and Andrew built this sort of culture of really wanting to support the job seeker, as well as the hiring audience. Um, but for me, it really started to say, well, hold on a minute. If there's a career life cycle, surely there's a learning life cycle, and surely the two are intrinsic and linked to each other. So, um, who's doing that at the moment? And um, I think that was really for me personally where those found and those initial ideas were laid um, that I was really actually also lucky to, to, to sort of explore in the last couple of years that I was at SEEK with the SEEK learning business and around a strategy role for understanding how SEEK could support that hiring audience that organizational component around um, education and learning as well because they were already doing the job seeker stuff through SEEK learning so right so look SEEK great success story and on to another one let's talk about go one yeah uh, and uh, I think quite uniquely positioned with a global footprint now across education which yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit about but mm-hmm. um, what's the sort of world view uh, from Go One and from where you sit in terms of education? Look I think the, the thesis is still pretty true to the original one that we had when we started the organisation in its current iteration about four and a half years ago. Um, I think we were looking at the business and, and we started off life as a, as a learning management system so as a SaaS business um, and you know, we were conscious at that time that the learning management system space was a busy one, six, seven hundred different systems around the world. But what was was it really addressing the pain points that we saw in the market? And and, and they really broke down into three things. One was around um, organizational learning and development, how well supported or not that was. And what we were seeing was that L&D was pretty heavily under resourced. So I spoke to a big hotel chain one and a half L&D people looking after six and a half thousand people's training. So, you know, there was an under-resourced piece there that we wanted to figure out how we could help, how we could support those L&D professionals. The other pain spot was around technology. So, um, and I think this is true of education at a macro level. It's probably one of the last bastion institutions to be effectively, dis- well, I don't even like the word disrupted, but evolved um, looking at technology and everything else that goes with that. So the incumbent players were more focused on how do we support reporting and the L&D professional versus a really important lens, which is how we're we supporting the end learner. So there was a technology piece that I still thinks, think rings true now, but is probably less, less acute as it was back then. I think the really interesting one for us in particular, though, is, is content. Mm. So we see this digitization in content escalating over the last eight years digital content's been around for 20 years right plus like if we look back to linda you know it's 25 years ago now and i'll touch on this a little bit later but there's a guy called peter diamondus who does the the six d's of exponential growth and the second stage of that is around deception or deceptive the fact that something digitizes and comes to market and we think it's going to change the world and we're all really excited and then we get this sort of 10 10 year lull where ah it's not quite as effective as we thought it was and i think it's probably something we experienced through digital content up until about probably about eight years ago where we saw this real kick 
in volume coming to market. However, with that comes the issue of fragmentation, discovery and, and friction around that. So that was a key area that we really wanted to look at. And I think still, to be honest, rings true today. And I think what that lends itself really nicely to is our aggregation model where we're looking to try and make the distribution of that content more efficient and effective, but at the same time, access to it more efficient and effective and uh, all out of a garage in <laughs> brisbane i understand is that right yeah well but i mean I, I tell you like one of the big things for me was uh, and you know one of the appealing things of leaving the comfortable and fantastic bosom that was seen <laughs> was um and to go and work in the startup space which was the first for me uh was how inspirational the four founders were um andrew chris vu and chris that i mean you know the business, I think there was maybe 10 of us back then and uh, still very young. They'd worked for themselves since they were 18. So this wasn't necessarily their first rodeo, but, um, you know, they were young and, you know, good t 12 plus years younger than I was, but just hugely inspirational, knew a lot and were deeply passionate about the business. But yeah, four lads from Brisbane who had been working together since uh, since high school. Yeah, no, it's fa fabulous to see uh, mm. Australian success story. So mm. um you called it before an aggregator of content. Mm. I think obviously it's been go once considered a marketplace, mm -hmm. uh, and should we potentially see this as the Netflix or Spotify of learning? Yeah. So I think the big thing for us, you know, when you see this aggregation model happen in any type of industry, whether it's books, TV, music, uh, it does. You know, the, when we see a lot of digitization of content in those mediums, it lends itself really nicely to that aggregation model. And in turn, you know, this sort of subscription play that we see in a lot of those providers, I think um, learning and education absolutely lends itself to those models. And that's a, exactly what we look at. You know, we use the, the term, you know, the Netflix of training. Um, you know, we the best place to sort of find, book, deliver and track that training. I think the major difference for us versus those uh, mediums, though, is that training isn't just a nice to have like a music or um, TV. It's actually a must have in certain applications, whether it's compliance, professional development and so on. So there's a, there's a key differentiator for us in that. And, um, you know, the aggregation model itself isn't new, but I think it's a really interesting application to learning. And again, the big thing for us is is ensuring we can sort of distribute that content to, to the right audience and, and there's a contextualization piece that we'll probably dig into a little bit later as well so uh i know that you believe this that education is more important than ever <laughs> so uh, can you share some of the reasons why look i think there's two parts to that probably one is the the, oh, the personal and organizational view that we have i think as i was talking to about my sort of save the children and social impact experience um there's a societal a, a societal level impact that can be addressed through education and um, I think now more than ever that's critical right because we see this fantastic advancement in technology um, and really what that does is it helps get us towards this point of democratization in education and learning right so there's never been a better time to be able to give more people access to it based on technological enablement and so I think for us you know, you only need to look at examples like what's happened in certain developing countries, Kenyan farmers who, you know, are able to utilize their mobile technology to understand better techniques for irrigation and harvesting, you know, stuff that they would probably not have gotten access to before. Um, but that's really fascinating. And a fascinating example in Africa in particular, where you've got a continent that's basically skipped a traditional form of technology that we're used to, which is desktop technology, you know, it's not it's not affordable. And um, so that's been a good enabler there. I think, you know, the advancements in SaaS and cloud technology has really helped bring entrepreneurs to the market and giving them a platform to be able to show innovation in this space. I think another big key one uh, of why it's important now is our comfort and adoption for things like data and artificial intelligence and machine learning. All this stuff leads really nicely into effective search and recommendation opportunities when it comes to education and also sort of learning more about what that actually means. I think the final piece on that is um, future of work. So now we're looking at real changes um, in jobs, automation affecting industries, um, and skills that are going to be needed at scale for jobs that are coming. I mean, it's the thing we've all heard, you know, universities are sort of and colleges are, are trying to keep up with the demand for, for jobs that don't exist right now and being able to create content around that. So I think it's really important role that education and learning plays in all of that yeah i think hand in hand with the technology as well is as a community 
the change we need to see. Talks about this a lot on on this podcast is a culture of upskilling, reskilling, and that sort of habit of learning. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I think in defence of of learners and organisations with this one, though, I, I, and it comes back to sort of some of the acute points we want to we want to address as an organisation. Uh, I'm not sure today they've been supported in the most effective way when it comes to upskilling and reskilling. Um, but obviously, that's something that we at Go want to acutely aware of and want to address. I think what's really important and helpful, though, in this regard is is context, right? Because this, there's so much information out there. It's more of a matter of what's the right content at the right time and in flow, right? So uh, from a flow perspective, it's obvious. And, and you know, this becomes really all con- uh, conscious to me when I think about my time back at seat, you know, and you think about the journey of a job seeker. I'm looking to apply for a job. That job has five role requirements that are necessary and I cater for three. So what we want to be able to do in real time is go, well, looking at your digital learning ID or your job seeker profile, where are the gaps and how do we match the job to the skill and the skill to the content so we can help you in real time fill those two gaps of you know, role requirements that can help you with that application flow. So, you know, it for me, upskilling and reskilling is great when we think about it, but if we can contextualize it and put it at a point in time and in flow, it becomes really, really powerful. Um, you know, there's another example when we think about reskilling, and we do some fantastic work with an organization called Fathom, who are an AI business doing work around uh, jobs to skills and matching that and thinking about that application of that from a future of work perspective. With our role from a go on, you know, element being uh, matching those skills to content. So if we think about an accountant, right, potentially really affected by automation in the future. Um, so what are they going to do? Like, what, are, what do the opportunities look like? And, you know, there's a mapping piece there where it says, well, actually, you know, 60% of the skills that you've got as an accountant correlate really nicely to a cybersecurity analyst. So have you thought about maybe making that change sure there's still that 40 percent gap that we need to fill but here's all the content to get you on the path to help with that so i i I think absolutely we need to embrace it i think part of it is the responsibility of us in the market bringing effective solutions into play for them to do it but i think absolutely yeah part of it is is on them yeah i think those uh, having those 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 tools those platforms uh, sort of feeding those ideas you know is really will help support that change in habits really for me, habitual learning is a really important part, right? And so I think what it does and where that tends to lead off from is this, our definition of learning and what we see, right? And I think that is ever changing. You know, a big one that I talk about a lot is this concept of informal versus formal. And I'll elaborate a little bit on that because formal, I think we're all comfortable with, right? It's the K to 12, it's the, the vet, it's the higher ed, it's the short courses, it's, it, it's all the courseware type stuff. But there's a massive component of content out there that sits more in that informal space. What we're doing now, podcast, um, video, blog posts, articles, all this stuff that we are probably learning a little bit more habitually than we think. But no one's really helping us understand that learning experience and and also capture it, right? And take that data, take those signals and use it as a way to inform that habitual learning experience. So I think that's a, a big component of it and something that we're really focused on. When we talk about content at Go One, yes, we talk about a lot of that formal stuff, but you also really want to embrace the informal as well. Again, as I've, and I'll continue to touch on, it's about right content. So making sure that we're able to surface that to people. I mean, there's a huge amount of content out billions and billions and billions of, of pieces of content i think there's a internet scholar called clay shirky who summarizes this really well right it's not a question of information overload it's more of a question of filter failure you know there's there's tons of stuff out there how do we put the necessary filter in place to make sure that we're getting the right stuff and cutting out a lot of the noise so i think you know that's also a big component of of, of habitual learning um yeah, and I think for us, I, 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 shame, I don't want to shamelessly plug, but there's something that we're really thinking about at the moment, which is this data layer, or if you like, this digital learning ID that is highly applicable and contextualized and personalized to the learner, which I, you know, for me really helps to evolve this process of learning. And that's understanding what it is that you're doing and surfacing that content to you, again, at the right time and in flow. So if we can get a decent understanding of what that is and what that looks like, um, then I think, you know, that's critical to supporting that and making that that journey more habitual. That, that piece you mentioned there about capturing some of those learning 
experiences that are you know maybe informal self-learning we're increasingly calling it. Do you see a world where we can actually capture those and make sense of those additional pieces? A hundred percent, yeah. And I think there's a number of ways for us to be able to look at at doing that. I think, you know, I'll talk to an example of something that we're working on. Uh, and again, it talks to habitual learning, but it's around that point in time piece. So I'm an organization, I use Microsoft Teams as a tool to communicate internally, but I'm having a conversation with some Mate, teammates and all of a sudden we start talking about a topic that I'm not familiar with data science AI ML so what is it you know I don't want to seem come across as ill-informed so I sort of you know what can what can I do and what we're looking to do through a, a application that we're integration we're doing with Microsoft Teams is enabling that individual to do a quick search on content pertaining to that and deliver them some content you know quickly to be able to go oh, okay I'll read this and I'll, I'll, I'll capture it another good example I think of technology being able to do that meaningfully is things like Chrome extensions, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm on my lunch break, I'm reading an article and I think, oh, that's really interesting. I've actually learned something from that. I'll capture that and I'll, I'll save it down to my profile or my ID. And in the, I, with the idea that over time, that data again and that signal will be able to provide us at Go One a better idea and view on what that learner is interested in and where they are and then in turn surface that back to them at the right time. But there's a big thing around learning experience, both formally and informally. And I think actually probably do ourselves a little bit of an injustice in that there's probably a lot of learning that does happen that we're just not capturing right now. All right, really interesting. So you've said a couple of times technology is the enabler. You also hinted at the six Ds of exponential growth. Can you share a bit more on that? Sure. So, I mean, for me, it's a, it's, it's, it's a no-brainer. I think as we move from this third industrial revolution to the fourth, technology plays a critical part. And I mentioned him earlier, but yeah, as you say, um, Peter Diamandis, he's the co-founder of Singularity U, and he's got a, a theory that's applicable called the six Ds of exponential growth. And ultimately, there's a a series of Ds that, that take part of that, ending with democratization, right? So the first step, though, is digitization of the six. So the reality is you don't get to democratization without that initial step of digitization, and you don't get to digitization without technology. So for me, that became a really interesting thought process to go through because um, how, you know, if we think about the bricks and mortar component, there's a very real impact of that when we think about trying to democratize education and, and there's actually a bit of a prohibitor. So, you know, how do we get there? And, and technology seems to be the main thing. I, I do think there's a bit of a watch out whenever we talk about technology and enablement though, because I'm reminded of, of Sir Ken Robinson um, and a great book that he did uh, called Creative Schools, which talks about how education at a macro level is still relatively hamstrung by industrial revolution thinking in that, here, 25 kids sat at their desks in a row facing the teacher who's facing back at them. So I think technology is great. Like churning them out like a factory. 100%. And, and understandable for the time, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. But now, you know, technology can be great, but if we're not thinking about that macro levels piece that Ken, Sir Ken Robinson talks about really, really well, then it's dangerous. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't looked into Sir Ken Robinson for a while, but I know that he had one of the most popular TED Talks, most viewed TED Talks ever, right, which is all around really challenging mm. a lot of the the thinking around how we actually educate people. Absolutely. And if you haven't watched it, it's it, I think it's still right up there. It's, is it? it's a really um, inspiring piece, even if you're not necessarily into education. And I think, you know, certainly from my perspective, when I saw that years ago now, um, was one of the things that really put me onto a lot of his teaching and, and reading. So is one of the six D's, is one of them disillusionment by any chance? No, you've got digitization, you've got deceptive, you've got disruptive, you've got dematerializing, you've got demonetize and democratize. So I think the disillusionment piece tends to sit in with the deceptive, right? Yes. So it's when you're, you go through this stage of digitization, you get really excited, oh, the world's going to change, this is incredible. And then you enter this sort of lull almost. And disillusionment is probably a good word as well, where there's such high aspirations and hopes, but then it doesn't materialize. And that's really common. That's not just applicable to, to learning. I think it's applicable to a lot of this exponential growth. And actually important part to go through in order to, to get you to the next step, which is disruptive, right? Mm -hmm. Which is where you are starting to make an impact, which is where you are starting to change the industry or wherever it is that you're operating. So it's um, it probably sits in more with that deceptive piece. Yeah, and so, some of the challenges, I suppose, that we've known, you've said obviously digital learning has been around for 20 years. Some of the challenges have maybe been how do you actually 
ensure there's collaboration? <laughs> How do you keep people motivated in online learning? But we're breaking through on some of that stuff as well, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, collaboration, people that know me are sick of me saying it, but, um, you know, it's a really critical piece for us because not just internally, because and as you'll be able to attest, building business and start, you know, early stage business is incredibly tough and you rely on your people and the collaborative nature. You've got to wear a lot of different hats. But more than ever, we're seeing a lot of that collaboration within our own industry. Um, and part of that is technology, but part of that is a change in thinking as well. And, you know, I, I even look at our two businesses working together, um, ReadyTech and, and in turn some of the subsidiaries, JobReadyLive, et cetera, where what we're trying to do with those businesses is add real value. So if you think about JobReadyLive, um, you know, working with um, job seekers, et cetera, yeah. there's an opportunity for us to surface that great co um, breadth of content we have to that audience um, via that technology so it's not that we want to take over what job ready live does it's how do we add value and how do we collaborate and i think it's also a big piece from from an organizational learning as well in that you know one of the recommendations i have when it comes to organizational learning and development is to really look at your vendor and technology stack right so see them as puzzles uh, each vendor each technology is a puzzle piece how do you put them together in the neatest format to make this really compelling picture so massively important and 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 i'd urge anyone looking or working in this space to rather than think about and worry too much about competitive friction how can i work with with other organizations i mean for us personally andrew the ceo and i sort of sat down a few years ago and we looked at the distribution partnership model that is now an intrinsic part of our business and you know we by focusing more on content and less on learning management and technology it enables us to collaborate really nicely we can work with learning technology systems we can work with crms we can work with talent management we can work with applicant tracking um, because we're really laser focused on the particular area that that we are which is content so i think it's a big piece and uh can i pull you back to the motivation piece what do you see in there in terms of ensuring that uh, when someone maybe is studying solo, maybe at home now, get mm. back to COVID-19 in a minute. <laughs> uh, how do we keep that without maybe that, you know, that uh, touch and feel that you get in, in uh, more traditional types of learning? Yeah, I think one of the key things here is that um, it needs to be adaptive and personalized with personalized being at the core of it. Right, I've touched uh, on a little bit of this concepts of learning pathways and digital learning IDs. I think these are really, really important in order to ensure that people continue to be motivated and i'll give you an example so um if we think about a business owner right he's uh, and the learning pathway by the way it can be if, if let, just to visualize it for you if we think about the sort of lifelong learning journey let's say that the t tail 30 percent is vet and higher ed and it's not necessarily chronological but let's just say that's a component of this pathway there's a 70 percent component that's made up of in a big chunk of informal learning and some of the smaller formal learning pieces like short courses and MOOCs, etc. So if we're thinking about the motivation component and thinking about this business owner, I, I've got a business, I'm growing the staff numbers, I want to get better at leadership. So I'm going to read some of these Ray Dalio, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos articles to help me understand that. And that's great. And it, you may not even see that as, as learning. So what we want to try and do is put a ring around it and say, well, here's some stuff that you are reading and that you are quite interested in. Here's some more articles. Here's a podcast. Here's a blog to follow. And if they start to pick up on that and get motivated by that, then you can start to insert free short courses, paid short courses. And eventually you find this situation where this business leader has been learning for two years. And then we get to the back end of that pathway where your, your, your colleges, for example, can go, wow, there's a guy that's been learning about leadership for the last two years, both informally and formally, perfect for our Cert 3 in business management or diploma in business management and then beyond. So I think, you know, there's a really interesting and exciting opportunity to motivate people in that way. But what a component of that is the value, right? So so the value piece is, and it sounds cliche, but it's it's really important. So as part of that learning journey, it's understanding where that learner is. And again, the contextualized piece of that journey. So, you know, it might be that they're doing continual professional development because they're a lawyer and they've got to get their 10 hours and it's all of a sudden the deadline's looming. So we really need to do that. We should be able to help. We should know that based on all the data that's out there and just start saying, you know what, this is during a couple of months. Here's some content you need to start thinking about. Or the journey could be the upskilling one that I talked about earlier for, from, from an accounting perspective or the reskilling one from a job seeker perspective. I think it's just really about how we make it relevant and pertinent given 
what the content is, what the journey is and what the flow is. So I think that's critical. And no one, I think, does that better in, in my mind. No one keeps me more motivated than Spotify, right? If you think about the Discover Weekly playlist that you get surfaced every Monday morning, um, I see it as a challenge almost. I like getting up and then saying, okay, well, what 30 tracks have I been surfaced this week? And I've been collecting vinyl since I was 11, playing records since I was 16. And so I, I like to think I've both physically and you know, both literally got big ears, but also big sort of ears for music as well. And yeah, every week um, I'm getting surfaced five or to 10 new artists, loads of albums to listen to, loads of tracks to listen to. Now, I, you know, caveat to that is I've been using Spotify for 12 plus years and been feeding it heaps of data. I'm probably a little bit OCD in that respect, but it's that kind of motivation that I have for music. We really want to emulate for learning. So, and a lot of that comes down to the smarts, the data, and again, being able to surface the right content at the right time in flow. Brings back to mind Sir Ken Robinson again, actually, mm. because, uh, you know, and I talked about education not being quite so mechanical mm. and trying to create customized and really there was a call to arms, wasn't there, for technology to enable that and uh, really to create the conditions under which learners can flourish. Yep. Dan, we're in the eye of the hurricane of, of COVID-19, aren't we, really? Uh, and probably never has there been more an imperative for, uh, for remote delivery of learning. Uh, how are you thinking about that? I think, you know, we're really in... I think, you know, learning in the times of uh, COVID, it's like loving the time of cholera. <laughs> <laughs> learning in the times of COVID-19. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's, again, there's a couple, there's a personal one here, and I'm sure this would resonate with a, with a lot of people, but, um, you know, there's all of us at home, remote learning and, and remote working. Uh, I think about my daughter, um, and she literally started high school six, eight weeks ago now. So there's already that big transition. On top of that, she's now being pushed into or forced into a situation due to the pandemic of studying from home which brings its own challenges right so and she's at a public school so you know she's using teams at the moment microsoft teams to, to do that learning and teams is a great product but it's not built for education and, and training really so what's happening is the teachers are uploading course um, coursework in the in the format of a pdf and the kids are just expected to go away and do it and um i i see that as problematic because um and in defense of Microsoft Teams, it's not built for that purpose. So what is it that we can and should be doing at a societal level and also for us organizationally in order to support that? And one of the big things that we're doing now is looking to work with Microsoft to, you know, in transparency, they led our Series B round of fundraising. Um, but ultimately, we're looking at, we've done a built, uh, built an application out and an integration out with Teams to be able to surface learning experiences and support learning through Teams. So you don't need an LMS. You can basically do all of that through the application, through the GoOne um, plugin. Obviously, not necessarily fit for purpose for enterprise, but um, in this context and certainly for thinking about schools and, and so on, hugely valuable so i think this is all stuff that that is being thought about but um just probably was just left over there to to, to, to look at another time yeah as i said at the top it feels like a uh, an accelerator 100%. to a lot of the trends exactly. and you know it's hard to think that there won't be through this time an enduring shift towards remote delivery maybe this is a time where many institutions or businesses have been have been forced to look at remote delivery, there's going to be a lot of learnings mm. and they might go to phase two, phase three, where they take those learnings and improve because, the, you know, these shifts have been proven to actually be quite effective. Yeah, and I think, you know, it, it, even if I think about our engagement with, with UNSW in the uni space, right, like there's a concept there around lifelong learning. It's, it's a term that a, a lot of unis are using. It's just how are they supporting that? So, you know, if you think about an engagement with, with UNSW, it's around saying, well, students are, are coming doing their degrees, whatever it is they do, and then then what? Then we lose them to the broader ecosystem. So it kind of makes sense um, from a remote learning perspective to support those graduates. And if I think about the law faculty there, um, they're doing some fantastic work just to keep the, 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 the qualified lawyers connected, helping them with their PD, helping them with broader learning, and all of that's done remotely. And, and the interesting thing with that is that it actually ends up being a fantastic opportunity for the university further down the line because they can see the data, they can see the signals, they can see what's being consumed. So they know when is a good time to jump back in to start talking to them about other opportunities or other products that that university may have. So I think... I think that's relevant for literally any educator. Exactly. 100%. 100%. And I think... 
to you know, I, I totally agree with what you're, you you mentioned earlier around sort of accelerating this process. I think there's historically been uh, a um, a lot of procrastination that's happened. I don't think there's been any debate about the importance of being able to deliver education and learning remotely and digitally. Um, unfortunately, I think it's probably just one of those tough situations and lessons where it kind of forces the hands of, of organisations. And we don't need to talk about it. I mean, you, you've seen from some of the unis and, and, and how much, you know, economically they're struggling on the basis that they haven't been able to necessarily provide that effective remote learning experience. And, you know, to be clear, I mean, we see the same with organisations. You know, there's a lot of organisations out there who are struggling to a degree to, to cope with this working from home and this new world. And part of what we're trying to do is provide, again, if we think about contextualised content, learning pathways, you know, at no cost to our customers and partners to say, well, we've done learning pathways around COVID, adaptive learning pathways, we've done adaptive pathways for work, working from home. And actually, they've changed even in the last few weeks where initially we were talking about travel. Well, travel's banned now, so that can come out and we can replace it with something like cybersecurity because there's a lot of people working from home. Hopefully everyone's protected by the firewall, but you know there seems to be a real push at the moment where Absolutely. people are most vulnerable. So let's make sure that both as an organisation, but importantly as, as our people, are aware and conscious of what they can do and how these things change. No, I think unfortunately, I think that the, the cyber criminals could certainly be looking to take advantage of this, this situation, Absolutely. which is very sad. I'd like to talk about a bit more about content, actually, mm -hmm. and you're partnering globally with some great content providers and really leading content providers. How are we faring in Australia and what, what do you sort of see as best practice? I think, you know, I think this, if I, you know, if I'm being honest, I think there's still work to be done in this space. And I think part of it lends itself nicely to the, the, the comments and, and the discussion before around how we're thinking about digital learning. And I think more often than not, I remember going back to my old advertising days, I was in the broadcast and sponsorship team, right? And I remember the digital team coming to market. This was sort of late <laughs> 90s. And we were just sort of putting advertising through it because we had to and yeah. just like, ah, we'll, we'll see what happens there. Um, but we were doing it, but not in a strategic or anywhere near effective way. And it kind of re now reminds me of that time where, yeah, we know digital's there, but we're, you know, the big ticket items are more the bricks and mortar and we'll just focus on that for the time being and you know this 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 mix up and shake up around COVID-19 has really forced a, a lot of people's hands so there are the, the good news is there is there are people doing it really well and again I, I keep harping on about this concept of contextualized learning but it's certainly very important when it comes to content itself and there's a good example of that um, fantastic team in the UK called Filtered they, they do a load of training in different areas but one you know, basic example I can give you is their um, Excel stuff so before you've even started the course there's an assessment that happens where they ask you a series of questions to understand your levels of competency and how you intend on using Excel from a from a work perspective and so what that enables them to do is ensure that they're surfacing very relevant content because as you can imagine more often than not you're onboarding at an organization and they give you some Excel training it's the same for everyone right so I really like that idea of contextualized content as well as more broadly the contextualized learning piece. So I think that's a good example of that. I, I go back to the Khan Academy. I'm a bit of a fanboy when it comes to Solomon Khan. I, I love what they've done and their journey. And I think about, um, and there's actually there's another great TED talk on this where they talk about um, the pilots they've done with high schools in the US and actually looking at individual results within each topic area and class for kids in classes. And you know, we work off this premise that everyone's learning at the same levels and at the same rate, right? But that's so far away from being true. And it comes back to this whole concept of personalized learning. We're all quite different in how we do it. We like to think, you know, it's, it, it, oh, well, we can make it work. It's one class that'll do it. But it's it's really not the case. And so they've got the data there. You can see people's learning ha and habit, habits and performance. And I think what they do really nicely, again, in that contextualized premise is actually this person it, everyone's learning maths but this person's really struggling with algebra but they're doing okay in other areas but because they're not doing well in algebra that motivation starts to wane for maths in general imagine if we can get in there and have the data and context to go actually we just need to filter a little bit more algebra to bring them up to speed so i think you know i'd urge people to watch that if that's a, a topic of interest because i think you know the Khan academy do it pretty well as well dan you know that we work obviously with a lot of colleges private colleges and so forth and all types of educators and, and one thing that we that we do here quite regularly is that 
the creation of really good digital learning experiences is is, is quite expensive mm. and also over time can be expensive to sort of keep that relevant and, and keep it up to date mm. maybe against maybe what you can charge for those courses you know that in terms of that business model so any advice around that yeah i think ultimately a few pieces i guess one is if you've not sort of got that digital strategy in place start and do it now um i'd be surprised if that wasn't i'm not sure we can be more explicit with that given the situation we find ourselves in right now but i mean i think you really need to start thinking about how that digital strategy applies to your business college school uni whatever it is um i'd urge organizations to also think about think about it more broadly from a learning pathway perspective and i don't need to go back over that but um i think some of my experience at Seek Learning really helped to show me from a digital perspective just how much some colleges and institutions struggle with things like completion rates. You know, we had certain courses where the completion rate was as low as 10%. And again, I think that that's because the people that were going into those courses weren't necessarily, were, were either possibly not the right students or just weren't ready. And so I think if colleges and schools are looking at this concept of a learning pathway and being able to be more targeted with how they bring those students in that's 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 a really effective piece as well I think when we're thinking about content it's also about the modularization component not just the big ticket items and I think the great thing with modularization is that it lends itself really well to a micro credential piece right and uh, micro credentials have been talked about and badging has been talked about a lot over the last few years um, but I think now more than ever there's a really pertinent application of that um, given the technological access that we tend to have. I think there's also, when, when I think about content, I think about sort of, you know, not wanting to reinvent the wheel, right? There's a lot of stuff out there, be it formal or informal. And I think one of the exciting and interesting things that's going to be playing out now is how that friction um, competitively is going to impact the ability for people to work together collaboratively. So, you know, there's a great example of this. Um, we work with the Law Society of New South Wales and they wanted to figure out how they could provide a more compelling solution to their members, right? So they had all their own core content that they wanted to offer out that they could sell, but they wanted to complement that with the broader stuff of content that they would just never had any intention of creating themselves. So maybe some leadership stuff, maybe some communication stuff. And so they'd take content from ourselves and, you know, support that to provide a more meaningful subscription model to that audience, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, don't 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 necessarily look to have to reinvent the wheel. Um, I think the final bit on that for me is this concept of a long tail that we're seeing in content as well. Right. So at the, if we think about it in a graph format at the beginning of the graph, you've got very high volumes of stuff like compliance and communication and leadership and there's a lot of people doing it and there's a lot of content out there and then it steadily decreases down into quite a long and stretched tail of content you know niche content specialized skills training all of that type of stuff so what we're tending to see in the trend that we're starting to look at now is that that tail is getting longer and fatter as people are seeing the opportunities in those more specialized areas as well as new skills and technology coming to market that people need to be trained up in so i'd also start looking at areas like that where you can differentiate yourselves and the market is maybe a little less competitive but content certainly isn't the cheapest thing to create even digitally so I, you know the big thing is just looking at talking to instructional designers if you don't have any in your college or your business I'm not suggesting hire them, I mean, that would be great, but also there's a lot of really talented ones out there and they can really help when it comes to that idea of, of pulling together a digital strategy. Right, so uh, obviously there's an opportunity for training providers, I'm sure there's some examples of, as well, to look at something like an aggregation platform to get eyeballs of students and to, to create maybe uh, the next uh, pipeline of students that maybe can come on to their bigger, bigger courses, their longer courses and so forth. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it... It just requires probably a little bit of a mindset shift in so much that mm. there's probably areas of the learning journey or the pathway um, that they're not necessarily thinking about. And to a certain degree, understandably, I mean, again, I've, I've sort of heard the conversations around, ah, oh, but short courses, it's expensive. We don't make any money from it. You know, we'd rather sell our nine, 10 grand business and management diploma. That's a far, far, far better for us. But I, I think times are changing and I think the appetite for people to embrace, you know, the big ticket items as part of that learning journey, I'm not going to say is necessarily diminishing, but there's other options now, right? And so I think 
letting your tentacles start to reach further down that journey or, or at the earlier part of that pathway to understand and, and get access to and visibility on what what's interesting people what are they already reading and learning about is is critical and I think you know part of not so much in the short term because you know we're still very much focused on the organizational support and learning and development piece but certainly sort of mid to long we're, we're doing a lot of work in that area where we can help uh, provide that that really valuable lead if you like but what what it still requires from those organizations is a mindset that okay well we actually maybe need to be looking at this slightly differently let's think about how we're doing that and again some organizations are doing this well and I really like the idea or the concept of a lifelong learning proposition that unis and colleges have they just need to implement it and and they need to start doing it because I think through that they'll start to get a line of sight on some of that um, earlier stage learning pathway activity. I think that's really wonderful advice. I'd like to come back to micro credentials if we may. Uh, I think you know I'm I'm just a really big believer that uh, they're going to make a really big difference in the future of work and and also linked to that I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit around how you see portability of of learning into the future. Sure so um, I think as we've already touched on micro credentials conceptually are nothing new but I think how they've been meaningfully applied to the world is probably where where things have have, have not stuck. Um, I'll, I'll again try and bring it to life with a bit of an example of how we see it um, there's some work that we've been doing with seek around one of their products called career advice um, ultimately these are pages through the seek ecosystem um, each job out in the market has its own page and it talks about the uh, qualifications you need to get into it where the jobs are state by state what the pay is by state what the progression curve looks like and what you need to do to get there the types of skills that employers are looking for and that are applicable during the application process and we've been able to inject a carousel directly under that which is for content so we're basically mapping the content um, that we have to the skills that are being asked for in that flow so one of the big things that we see an opportunity with as an example is to have micro credentials in there as a pathway for people to pick up, whether it's business, whether it's... I mean, the great conversation we're having right now with a, a nursing association is that they would sort of badge up a series of five pieces of content so that when the nurse is going through this this pathway, um, they can actually get that that credential or that badge. And that, becomes, that sits against their job seeker profile and that becomes really meaningful when they're trying to get back into the market because not only does it show intent but it actually shows that they've got the necessary badge from that body. And you can sub in industry associations and bodies with colleges, universities, et cetera. And I think, you know, there's a really fantastic opportunity to our conversation earlier about pathways where they can use those as as lead-ins to some of the bigger ticket items that they have. Um, And there's also the benefit with a lot of these schools and institutions that they have strong brands to be able to utilize. So really important. So I think on the micro-credentials piece, it's, it's really exciting. And I see, again, talking at the beginning of this to career and the connection between education and learning I think that'll be a really important one on that pathway Uh, I think the portability piece is also really exciting Um, I've mentioned a few times now around the digital learning idea or this concept of a digital learning profile Um, the idea for us at Go One from the very start has been that you should be able to have take your learning record with you regardless of where what geography you're in regardless of what industry regardless of what job you do and I think one of the the failings at the moment for organizational learning and development is that they tend to really focus inwards on their own organization and don't tend to think about their their individual people's broader learning aspirations and where they want to get to and you know I'm reminded of that classic well what if we train them up and they leave and well what if you don't and they stay situation and you know if I think it the portability of that digital learning ID and profile becomes really important. And, you know, it's something that we're really thinking about. And again, when we think about the different customers we work with, the different distribution partners that we work with, it puts us in a a really good position to be able to offer that solution out. Because I think it really nicely knits into a lot of the questions you've already asked about motivation and value. And, and, you know, if you can showcase that ID and and take it with you from job to job or experience to experience, it becomes really important. So portability is is critical in all of this because at the end of the day, you know, if you can't take, you know, you spend four years with an organization doing training and development, but then you can't take it with you. How do you expect those people to be engaged? So, Love it. Love it. So uh, lastly, I just want to ask you a bit of a moonshoot, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Dan Fish, uh, big predictions for the future of work. Yeah, that's a big question, isn't it? 
I think ultimately, again, being the half glass full person, I think the future's really bright uh, as long as we're prepared. Uh, and again, t- t- where, where we are currently is, is a classic example of that. Uh, I think, you know, we're really excited to be working with the likes of Fathom, Middle Eight, Seek um, on that mapping piece of jobs to skills and skills to content and what that means for the future of work and something that we're, we're really focused on. I see that actually as an opportunity, not just for ourselves, but other educational institutions and people putting content out there. So actually, I'd, I'd urge a number of your customers to, to be thinking about that as well. I think positioning and context is critical. I think as we see this piece around future skills, future work, we're going to need to be able to work collaboratively to address that. And again, I've sort of harped on about collaboration a lot through this, but um, I don't see it as one. There's not going to be one silver bullet that helps us on this future of work front. It's going to require a series of organizations and technology and thought leaders to come together to work collaboratively and support society more broadly. So um, I think that's a really critical one. And and again, I we touched on it a second ago, but I think with the support of that digital learning ID concept, we're able to provide sort of more visibility. We're able to utilize a lot of the data and smarts around uh, relevant recommendations and, you know, thinking again about that Spotify piece, but also understanding the broader and bigger picture for individuals, whether they're employees or, or, or in, you know, independent learners, whatever that looks like. And I think there's a really important role the, the institu- educational institutions as well as employers play in that is just to be supportive more broadly and, and really cognizant of, of, of that pathway. And I, again, it's, it's not just while they're with you, but it's where they're going next. So I, th- I think the future is very exciting. I think there's a lot to be excited about. But yeah, I certainly think that was awesome and share a lot of that excitement with you. I think you've really shared with us some, some really interesting sort of seeds of innovation, particularly around technology that's maturing. Uh, which uh, you know, I think we need to better connect in the future of work. So, Dan Fish, thanks so much for coming on Worked. Thanks, Matt. Stay healthy as well, by the way. I will intend on doing so. I really enjoyed that discussion with Dan. I hope you enjoyed it too. Look, I'd love you to share with your friends and colleagues as we continue to build our network at Worked. And please don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming service. I've got some awesome guests coming up. Please don't miss another episode. I'll catch you soon on Worked.